episode, we're going to talk about a subject that is often discussed and requested across our community and feedback channels, how to get hired at a tech company. Unfortunately, Piali sends her regrets for not being able to join me in co-hosting this episode. But luckily, before recording, we discussed some of the strange journeys that we individually experienced in our own career paths from junior to more senior roles. Piali shared with me how tiring and intimidating full-day, intensive, multi-stage interviews could be at larger companies that she's worked for and applied to. For myself, I recalled some early moments when first breaking into product at smaller startups and how unstructured the interviews felt with strange questions asked to test my problem-solving and research abilities. Most notably, I remember a question that asked me, if you were a city planner and were notified that an earthquake is about to hit Vancouver, what would you do? I was given 10 minutes and a pen and paper to jot down my ideas. For those looking to start their careers in tech or pivot to a new type of role in tech, there is a huge spectrum of lessons, tips, and red flags to learn from. And with today's episode, I hope you learn some of the shortcuts in getting hired and hear some opportunities on how the tech and education industry might be better able to create pipelines for future recruits and make better quality of work for those applying. It's with this that I'm joined by two guests today. Jeremy Kanev, a Principal Product Manager with Workday, and Kirill Vichdemov, a UX designer at Amazon and founder of UX Career and My Soul Team. This is Broadcast BC. Kirill, Jeremy, thanks for joining me today. Jeremy, why don't um, I start with you? Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, hi, Blake. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. So uh, I've been a product manager at Workday for the last eight years or so, and been a product manager probably uh, for the last, say, 11 years. Definitely can describe myself as the accidental product manager. Um, started out as a business analyst and, and then a functional analyst on the using uh, HCM ERP grade software, um, and then sort of moved into the software development uh, space by accident. And it was just a happy occurrence for myself uh, that, you know, I really enjoyed the sprint methodology and the sort of you're only as good as your last release sort of perspective to product development. So it was it was really exciting to see how uh, things always change and there's always a rapid pace. And so that kind of happily played into an opportunity at Workday. Um, and I was able to onboard with them as a remote employee working with a with a team based in the, the Bay Area down in San Francisco. Been doing that remotely really for the last eight years. And it's it's been fairly successful uh, for myself and, and my career. Great. And uh, Kirill, tell us about yourself. First of all, thanks for inviting me. This seemed like a very exciting opportunity to, to connect and uh, catch up and uh, share what I've learned and uh, all my key takeaways from my journey. Before I share anything, though, I would like to to mention that everything that I say in this uh, on this podcast is just my opinion and does not represent any of my current or previous employers' views. Okay, so I guess UX slash product slash digital designer kind of job title. My day job currently is at Amazon, where I think it's been like a bit more than three years right now. Uh, so it's quite quite a lot, and I'm I'm glad that I survived all this time. Before that, I was working in agency, like digital agency, fintech, working with different industries, but primarily focusing on the enterprise kind of experiences, 
which I find a bit more stimulating and more challenging, just kind of to 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 exercise this design muscle and like problem solving skills. As for my relation to the product management world, uh, which uh, I'm like is very close to me, I'm also an entrepreneur with many many different, mostly unsuccessful attempts to build something like startups and side projects uh, where actually the majority of my of my effort there was related to the product strategy, management, and um, overall trying to kickstart a business more than design, but also design. So it's like a bit more one or sometimes two-person show uh, where you have to take many different hats, um, wear many different hats. Uh, yeah, yeah. So currently living at, uh, in Vancouver. And Jeremy, uh, you're in BC, but you're up in uh, Kelowna as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. There's a, a small tech sector here, and that's originally what lured me uh, to Kelowna. That in uh, uh, a good family base. When we started our family, it was it was just nice to be closer. But that was definitely a, a good opportunity to get into the product space. There's quite a few well-established uh, software companies as well as startups. So um, it's a it's definitely a good place to consider if uh, if you're looking to get out of the Lower Mainland. You both work for companies that aren't headquartered in Canada. Um, you're working through BC, but with quite large global organizations. Um, so could you share a little bit about what's your experience been like working from BC uh, for these larger companies? It's kind of tricky in my situation. So as I mentioned, I work at Amazon right now, right? And technically, yes, the mothership is in Seattle, at least the primary one. So they, they got the second one now on the East Coast. And we have our own office here in Vancouver with quite a few buildings and pretty big staff. However, you can still feel that we're not in the center of where things are happening. So we definitely, you can feel the, the distance here. But frankly, um, I'm really glad that our primary location, the headquarters, uh, is so close. Before COVID, we were really lucky that we could travel almost anytime we wanted or we needed and connect with the with the bigger office there. Uh, outside of the, I guess, the main headquarters in Seattle, there are so many different offices around the world and the states. So it doesn't feel that we're just like an isolated island because there's just like so many other distributed teams everywhere. So I don't feel that there is a, I guess, frankly, big difference between our location and uh, the fact that it's American company. Uh, we have a really big office here in Vancouver and um, quite a lot of uh, leaderships here as well. So yeah, not experiencing any issues with this uh, situation. And Jeremy, how about yourself? Well, uh, from my experience, um, seeing as there wasn't really any dev offices in British Columbia, most definitely not in Kelowna, uh, it involved a lot of travel, particularly early on. So uh, lots of traveling to the uh, the mother mothership, so to speak, uh, down in Pleasanton. So a lot of those early days, it was, you know, usually travel once or twice a quarter, uh, sometimes, you know, once a month just to establish the team and establish your presence with, uh, with the rest of the products. So it's to your benefit really to kind of show your face around the office, but that helped to establish early rapport with, with uh, other folks within the organization. Things have changed a lot, though, over the years. Workday has grown considerably over the last eight years. And so there's development offices now in Vancouver and in Victoria, and there's fairly significant space there with plans to grow. So there's there's hiring that's been going on across the globe in many different locations. But back then, uh, really, the, the dev decisions tend to, happen, tend to have happened really in Pleasanton and in Dublin, Ireland. And so you needed to be kind of close to those two areas geographically to be able to to, to uh, further progress your career. That's not the case anymore. Not really feeling that, and it's it's definitely opened up opportunities for folks that are in 
more of the remote locations to be able to work for a, a global company. And of course, COVID changes everything and allows folks to be a little bit more remote. Uh, so there are hybrid roles, of course, where you still have to go into local offices. But generally, there's, uh, I think, a little bit more of an open nature to uh, accepting the more remote roles. Yeah, it feels like that the the recent situation that we've been for almost two years now <laughs> has allowed us to realize that actual location is not critical for running a successful company. At least one of my key takeaways was that you can do a lot of things um, successfully without really being in a particular location in an office. And uh, with such a large company as, for example, Amazon, right? So with so many different locations, I feel that we actually, we have been functioning really effectively and very efficiently from like getting the job done and really releasing many, many different things and projects and products while still working from home. And I'm still working from home for, for this day one thing to keep in mind also talking about like the locations and like the the american presence as the primary headquarters location is that with amazon particularly because they have so many different offices and teams around the world and they're very open and actually very supportive of internal transfers and internal movements so even if you live for example in vancouver today uh, nothing really stops you the company supports you moving to head office where maybe there are more opportunities and more different teams uh, located that you can really grow your career faster or even Europe. So they're very, very open to that. So one of the actual benefits of this company. Thanks. Jeremy, I was going to direct a question to you as well in terms of like working remotely in BC. Is there any advice to people who may want to work for a company uh, remotely like you do uh, in terms of getting into the application process, getting notice from a remote location that may have less employee locally. What has your experience been like that? And what advice would you give for someone looking to work for a remote opportunity like yourself? Uh, well, I would say a pre, pre-COVID, that was definitely a difficult offering to find. It's not like you go to hiring boards and see remote pasted all over positions or filter on remote and, and just start applying to those roles. So there was definitely uh, some chance taking on my part, and that might still be the case once uh, there's a bit of a kind of move back to the normal where there's maybe more office presence for roles. But sometimes uh, the need for the position or for the right resource is is more important than the location of that resource. And I think in that case, that's that's where things worked out for me was they were looking for particular expertise for a product that they wanted to start to build and they couldn't find it locally. And so then they, they made exceptions where they were willing to allow for, for remote folks. And so sometimes that's what needs to happen. You need to get a little lucky. Sometimes you just need to get your foot in the door as far as interviews go and start having conversations with the right people and build a rapport where you both start to believe that you, you have mutual advantage to gain from each other and that this would be a good situation for both the team you're trying to join as well as for yourself from a career development perspective. And when, when it's a win-win situation like that, then sometimes it's worth taking that risk. Um, and it always just comes down to corporate policy, right? So sometimes it's just there's not much they can do about it. But um, if you're patient and you're willing to wait for the right opportunity, uh, sometimes it, it presents itself. And Krill, is there any advice that you'd offer for people looking for remote opportunities in larger companies uh, that you've seen in the last while? Yeah, so frankly, I don't have any personal experience finding a job at a remote first or remote friendly company. So it's just like it happened this way. So initially Amazon and my day, my job there is uh, was uh, office. Um, yeah, heavily in, in the office uh, format. 
if I were to to go and try and find a job in a remote first company, I would probably start with the uh, with different communities that are targeting the remote workforce and remote uh, workers. I think there are several of those more well-known ones. And uh, try to, first of all, identify different companies who are open to remote instead of trying to find a job and then tailoring my, I guess, my strategy towards these companies, particularly, obviously, with preliminary research and really making sure that those choices, these choices align with my own values and align with my Yes, the next steps for for the career that I determined for myself. Let's transition a little bit too about uh, the interviewing process and sort of getting noticed and getting prepared for the interview process. So not remote specifically, but just in terms of getting yourself noticed out there. Do either of you have any advice or major observations that you have in terms of what you see as people exhibiting problems, getting their foot in the door or getting noticed for the bigger roles out there? So I think it's really important that folks that are looking for a new opportunity don't necessarily just canvas anything that they see, or more in particularly that they see a company that they're interested in joining and apply to anything that might seem to fit, even if it's just a small percentage match to their to their skill set. I find that I see that more often than not, and those are the folks that generally get passed over are the ones that aren't taking a targeted approach to their their job search. So as much as your excitement may drive you towards an organization and want you to want to see yourself in a in a role at maybe the the Amazons, the Googles, the the Facebooks, it's really important that you see where the advantage for yourself and that organization is and target for the position that you actually want as opposed to just any that might tan out for you. And so with modern ERP systems, modern recruiting systems, they see which jobs you've applied to, they know, right? And so that's a red flag to any hiring manager that sees that you've applied to a dozen to 20 different roles at the at that organization. So you got to take that into consideration. I feel like some people don't uh, take that into consideration when when they are targeting a particular company. I think they need to be they need to be patient. They need to apply to maybe one job at a time for that organization and wait to see how that one works before deciding to go after another. Yeah, I think this comment definitely resonates with my my personal observations. And especially as you're saying, like on, on the ERP side, on the other side of the of the company, when a candidate, you can see that they apply to dozens and sometimes hundreds and sometimes thousands of jobs. You know what it means. And it's definitely not something that speaks very highly of this candidate. It's kind of a red flag, but it's it's not really justified like in, in real I mean, like their qualifications, right? So nothing really says that they're not qualified for this job, but it kind of like says about their desperation a bit. For me, it's detracting. I completely agree uh, that it's that you should not really be applying to everything, even like with like large organizations when you have multiple similar jobs and try to make sure that your profile and like what you're, what you're good at and where you're going at uh, for your next step in a career is more aligned with that particular job post, you know, like this particular team, right? And their problem space and their maybe even like the, the team members that you're potential manager, the hiring manager there, which is a very important piece that lots of people miss, unfortunately. Just to add on that as well, in terms of writing your resume the right way uh, so that it does get noticed or building your network so that it seems like there's enough connection or localized interest on that, is there advice that you'd have on what the right things to do uh, to get noticed would be? Boy, yeah, yeah. I feel pretty strongly about this. I think it's really important to align your resume to the position that you're applying to. Right. Take that into consideration that this is your first and 
usually only opportunity to get who you are across to the the recruiter, right? That's the first person that's going to look at the job. And so, you know, what methods are they going to use to to poll candidates? So that's that's a consideration you need to take in. And then the next one is once you get past that, how do you impress the hiring manager enough to be able to get a conversation, right? That that face to face call is once you have that, that's really on you. That the resume doesn't matter anymore. You've gotten your foot in the door and now it's about building the rapport. So if you can't tailor your resume to what they're looking for, then I think you've done yourself a disservice in your in your chance to get the role that you think, I mean, I'm assuming this is the job you actually want as opposed to just any old job. And that's, I think, the distinction to make is that this is something you want. And so you should you should reflect that in your effort towards applying for the job. It's your your desire comes through in the in the care you take in applying for the job. Totally. Completely agree with Jeremy here. I have a bit more, I guess, like a different angle to share from my personal background and the design world. So actually for some managers, for some design managers, they care more about your portfolio as a designer and like your work speaks more of, of your accomplishments than resume. So I've heard from some some folks that they actually they don't even look at the resume. They go straight to the portfolio. And if it's good and like eye-catching and really kind of you can get a good feel of it. Uh, then they would look at the resume to kind of to understand more about your history. But um, yeah, I think for design, it's like a bit more specific to to our world, like to the like with some visuals and stuff. One more comment I wanted to make about the different expectations, which I've learned a lot uh, in the last, I guess, maybe a couple of years since I started digging deeper into the recruiting world and like the hiring managers world. What I realized is that the expectations can be very different depending on the size of the company. This, the team structure, as, as, as you're saying, Jeremy, right? So the, the first thing you need to, to think of is what recruiter is looking for? What kind of answers are they looking for? And quite often, they would not have as, as a deep of understanding of the, the problem space and the job specifics for this particular role because they just were working across multiple different family, job families. So they would be mostly looking for some different keywords uh, that, that they got from the hiring manager. Uh, second, second layer is like really how do you impress the hiring manager with your achievements and results and maybe different uh, responsibilities that you took on in different companies. So there's kind of a different set of questions that the next, I guess, I guess like archetype has in their head when they look at your resume. So you need to also tailor to that. But also keep in mind that quite often, and I've seen this trend uh, with a growing trend actually, with more and more companies who are introducing more automated tools to screen out resumes, which basically you you actually, there is a chance that you, nobody actually will see your resume at all just because you didn't include enough number, um, enough keywords uh, for that particular search that this particular recruiter may have defined for that particular job, right? Because they can define like different Boolean logic kind of keywords there. And if you missed like this threshold of, Maybe they look on only 80% uh, match in their list ranking list, right? So it's getting quite tricky to get through this. So you have to include some kind of keywords that are related to, first of all, your profession and that job, because usually they would actually kind of match or marry what keywords or key responsibilities or skills they would be in the job posting and what the candidates will have in their resume that the system will be parsing. That's uh, similar to, I guess, what you mentioned, Jeremy, too, about just being really clear about what they're looking for in that job description. Because if your resume doesn't line up to those things that are being asked for, if there is any kind of uh, uh, machine algorithm that's filtering that even ahead of time, it just won't match. Uh, you won't even make it past that. That's right. Yeah, you need to be pretty pretty clear about um, about your wording 
Uh, LinkedIn, of course, has all these skills that you can tag onto your profile. Of course, you should always share that your your LinkedIn uh, profile link as part of your your application and your uh, on your resume. And recruiters absolutely use those keywords, right? Um, so, Drill, you kind of mentioned that sometimes their span of control on the job families that they're hiring for, they may not have the technical expertise to really evaluate a candidate. So they're really just looking for those keywords. And I, I think that LinkedIn is an absolute culprit for that is what they'll do is they'll build themselves a pipeline based off of a keyword search and start filtering in that manner. And that comes from likely a lack of understanding of the of the, the technical skill sets folks need. They just they just latch on to the keywords first before really an appreciation for depth and breadth of skill. Something that's uh, been really interesting from our first episode of the season as well was about switching careers or switching into either product or design or just any tech related role. So obviously when it comes to getting hired, a lot of people are concerned about how do I first get that role of product management? It could be an associate PM or maybe a junior PM design. It could be a number of different roles that would be that first role in. But what sort of uh, advice would you offer people about getting that that first role? How do they get their foot in the door? That's a, that's a tough question. Uh, there isn't really a guideline or a map that leads you into the product role. That's why you're seeing sort of this burgeoning offering of certificate programs and and uh, sort of associate degrees and whatnot from from accredited universities and colleges. And uh, I think that there is a demand for a proven path to getting into that role. And I'm seeing more and more throughout the years, folks straight out of university wanting to be a product manager. And that I don't think that was necessarily the case 10 years ago. Um, and it wasn't as obvious as to how to get into a role like that. And I think previously you had to come from a subject matter expertise base to really get into roles like that. So either you're coming from that perspective or you're coming from the technical perspective. So um, I think it's a lot easier now to follow that track where you could go straight out of university and get hired into an associate PM role um, and that you can uh, sort of tailor your education to to appeal to a, uh, to a company to be hired in that particular type of role. But there's also, like you mentioned, somebody who maybe has been working for three to five years in industry and uh, sees this as an opportunity they'd like to get into and like to cross over. And uh, I think that for those folks, it's really the subject matter expertise that makes them attractive. Right. They represent an understanding of a business problem that a, that a software company is looking to solve for. And so they can they can use that that knowledge that they have to try and break into either a junior PM role or or BA role within that organization, which can eventually lead to um, a product role. And Carol, how do you uh, how have you experienced that in the design world as well? It's a very good question. And lots of lots of people keep asking this and especially in the design world when all the boot camps and other short shorter programs have spawned off recently just because there is such a i guess an advertising effort uh, to make it seem that it's so easy to get a job in ux so they're like three months or sometimes even like shorter programs would be enough for you to get a foot in the door which is not true for the vast majority of the of the candidates. I think it may be differ, different for design world and product management world, right? Because design has, I guess, a slightly easier pathway here because you can show what you can do with just having a good portfolio. There are multiple different ways how you can come up with different ideas and projects and actually work on real projects to create those case studies that are required for you to 
basically communicate to the potential hiring manager and, and recruiters that you can do this job, even though you may not have uh, had like a real work experience like this. So there's like volunteering opportunities, different nonprofits looking for help, side projects, uh, and some other ideas. To make it a bit more holistic, um, I would approach this from the point of view of really asking this question that a potential hire manager may have. Can they do the job? That's kind of the primary question that uh, I was posing for myself when I was trying to get in those shoes early in my career and like different careers at different steps. As an example, I can give you uh, one of the first jobs that I got uh, was in QA and I had zero experience in QA. What I did, I just, uh, the, the, com the particular company that I was applying to had uh, multiple different um, mobile applications in the app store. So this is like their product. What I did, I just downloaded a bunch of apps, chose uh, like five or seven of them, like a handful. And I carefully went through each of those apps on my phone and I documented every single issue that I found. And I Googled the format of like bug definitions and like all the different severities and like steps to reproduce all this kind of the key metadata, the fields. And I created a PDF report that I sent as a part of my application that was, I think like 16 pages of the issues that they found across those published live apps that they had in the store that was kind of used by many, many, many folks. And I got the job eventually. And this was one of the, uh, I guess, comments from the hiring team there, that this was like out of its um, realm. So like the, the application stood out from everybody else so much that, uh, and like kind of it also illustrated that I could do this job uh, in a way that even zero experience as a QA person before wasn't the, the reason to, to ignore my application. So I, I would actually approach this as a, like if we're talking about the product management world from the same lens, like if, if, for example, a director of product is looking for their next team member, what exact skills they're looking for? What exact maybe results? What kind of mindsets and responsibilities I would be doing there as a part of this team? And then like work backwards from this, I guess, definition of like the scope of the role and really see how you can maybe even pull something from your previous career and previous uh, experience to illustrate that you actually have these skills that you can do, uh, I know, stakeholder management or like presentation or whatever else is needed for this job. And I think this will make your application resonate more with a potential hire manager than just uh, trying to communicate through like a resume or cover letter. Just show them the, by example. And um, this doesn't have to be obviously a real work example, but um, you can find ways how you can mimic the real environment as close as possible obviously it will help you stand out i, I strongly believe that like this kind of approach will it's not like, like user-centered design methodology when you just like think from their needs and like what they're looking for and just give them the answers before they have to ask empathizing with the hiring manager themselves that's a yeah. good technique there are many different roles there so i empathize with each of them and really try to understand what each of those roles involved are looking for um, I feel like on this question of getting a foot in the door, uh, it's worth exploring uh, the state of internship programs as well. I'm just curious if either of you have observed, uh, you know, during the pandemic, post-pandemic, just the current state of the industry, maybe from your respective companies or just things you've observed, are internships still a large thing? And are those a good opportunity for people to get seen and noticed? When I started at Workday eight to nine years ago here, the, it was mostly development opportunities for, for internship. And uh, you didn't really see it, many other roles getting those types of opportunities, but it has changed dramatically. And so there are, there are definitely uh, internships across the entire spectrum now uh, within the organization. So it's I think it's a good opportunity to get your foot in the door and get a little bit of experience. And that's, I think that's typically what leads to that first 
associate PM role right out of university. And I absolutely would recommend going down that path. And that helps to distinguish you. Um, and previously, just a domain that was really just guarded for, for engineers. Um, and so it's, it's nice to see that the, that the doors are, are opening up in that regard and that, uh, that the, the need for talent has, has driven towards that. And I think that's probably the, the biggest driver, right, is that uh, there's just a, a thirst for, for new perspectives and new talent. So having folks recruited straight out of university is, is not as uncommon anymore. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And I've noticed this trend as well in the design world and um, actually some other related uh, job families as well. I'm really happy to see that this trend is is going up and uh, that more and more companies are opening up and try at least experimenting with their own internship programs. The problem, though, that I've seen so far, at least in the design world, is just a handful of companies who have openings for designers for like internship programs. That's A. And we're talking about like the Vancouver market, which is quite small, frankly. And B, even from those companies, uh, the vast majority, they would be uh, going through the co-op kind of program, which I'm not an expert in the whole spectrum of the internship programs in Canada. But as I understand, this is related. Co-ops are specifically for some educational institutions when they partner with different employers and they have like more like agreement and relationship to open opportunities for internships for their cohorts, which is great, but I know a lot of people who, first of all, cannot or don't have the luxury to attend these like these institutions. So it's a very limited set. So it's kind of a bit already exclusive to those folks. And I don't think it helps bring more diverse perspectives, especially if you think about immigration-heavy uh, country like Canada, when there are so many different folks coming to the country and they don't have this official badge of honor from a local institution. And they're automatically not even included in this uh, yeah, set of opportunities to, to get into the market, so which increases the problem. So I'm kind of iffy on that. And I tried to understand, I, I spoke with a few companies about like, what's the reason for this? And as I understood, uh, there are some tax and, uh, I guess, government benefits that companies would get if they hire through these co-op kind of official programs, which... I understand, but it kind of doesn't really go along the way with like the increasing diversity mindset that lots of companies preach about. But in the reality, they don't really act on this. I may sound a bit harsh on those companies. I, I think a co-op program, which is still limited, it's better than nothing. I completely agree with that. So it's it's a, at least a good change. And I've seen more companies jumping in this bandwagon. But I'm super happy to see when companies don't limit themselves to just co-ops. And they hire like any internship with like from any country, any background, which I love it. I love this idea and I fully support this. I spoke with the senior design manager at Clio recently about their program that they launched for designers. And um, it's been quite successful. And I, I, yeah, I fully support these companies. Love it. It's really interesting. Um, I, I've had some lived experience of seeing nursing programs, for example, of people coming from foreign countries, doctors in their home country coming to Canada and not even able to get a nursing job, never mind a doctor job. So the whole aspect of retraining and do they have to basically redo the whole academic track to get a local degree or is there some sort of medium program where they can just take a certificate style program and get that intern opportunity to get noticed and accredited within Canada. So it sounds like, you know, what you're calling out there is that maybe there's some room for that impact as well. 
uh, to you know help people yeah. get foot in the door here outside of the traditional academic path. Don't get me started on the healthcare industry. It's it's such a nightmare. I have a lot of friends who are super experienced doctors from other countries, and like nothing really matters for for the local authorities. Even though they're sometimes I would say like even more qualified than local um, doctors that I've seen. And the only explanation that I can think of is that the union that that manages the local workforce in this industry has some agreements or some kind of pushbacks uh, to make it much harder for other, um, I guess, other countries, other countries' experts to to get qualifications uh, confirmed and verified. I don't see any other reason because, yeah, it's not good. It's not good. Something to uh, continue to explore uh, as we've been trying to do even in the first season of this podcast, you know, opportunities to broaden uh, better diversity and inclusion in these roles is something that is really important in tech. Uh, it's definitely having its moment to look at, you know, DEI issues and how we can expand on that a little bit further. So it's good to, good to hear of a potential opportunity there. Um, I want to flow into the interview process. So we talked a little bit about getting your foot in the door, you know, getting your resume past that first gatekeeping wall. Um, what has your experience been in interviewing potential candidates? And what sort of advice would you give to listeners here in terms of the interview process and how to best prepare or potentially even to hiring managers? What advice would you give them to help improve that process? Sure. This, this is really fresh uh, from some recent interviews that we've been conducting. So one thing to take to heart, right, is that if you get sent documentation by the recruiter, you should probably read it. It's probably got some worthwhile documentation that you, you should at least be able to reflect Later on in the interview, uh, if you're ever asked a particular question, it has more to do with the type of company that you're going to join, right? The sort of ethos and the, the mindset of leadership. And you want to make sure that those values are in line with yours. And you need to be able to understand that this is, you know, this is what they're looking for. And if you're asked about it, that it's not a question that you have no real answer to because you haven't taken the time to consume that documentation. In addition to that, you need to do your research. You've got your foot in the door. You've gotten your opportunity to sell yourself. It should be more about a conversation about your enthusiasm for the role and that the conversation should flow with whoever you're being interviewed by, simply because it's it shouldn't be a readout of your accomplishments. It really should be about how you're a good fit for that particular team. Either you're interviewing with someone that's going to be a colleague or someone that you'll be reporting to. And in that regard, you need to, you need to put your best foot forward and explain how you're the best candidate. Essentially, uh, show through your experience, how you can fit into this role nicely and pick up the roles and responsibilities as quickly as possible. I think the biggest concern that most most hiring managers have is what kind of risk am I taking with this individual? And if you can alleviate as many of those concerns as possible in the interview process, then I think you're putting yourself ahead of the game and giving yourself your best chance. And Kirill, your thoughts? I think design-specific interviewing has some nuances to it. And uh, I've been actually quite involved in doing a bit more research on the different interview processes across different companies. And the variety is quite mind-boggling. So the number of steps, the length, the number of people involved, the types of the interviews you get, the types of the questions you get is very diverse across different companies and different teams. Frankly, the trend that I'm seeing is that like it's getting longer and longer. So there are more and more steps involved that are required that you have to go through. 
to get to the offer stage. So, and this obviously extends the time it takes to to go through the whole process. Also creates the the kind of I guess the underlying pressure for the for those companies who do that because uh, they keep losing candidates to to companies who are more agile and faster in their decisions and have fewer steps involved. Uh, one, uh, I guess, specific to design world step that uh, lots of companies uh, utilize today is uh, design exercise. It could be take-home exercise, could be almost like a real-time whiteboarding session. So there is a huge debate, um, or there has been a huge debate, and it's still going in the industry about the ethical side of this step, of this, uh, I guess, way to get the answers that the hiring manager is looking for because both have pros and cons and like it definitely excludes some folks uh, from the pool. It's either people may not have enough time in their life outside the work to go and uh, do this take-home exercise or is some folks who prefer deep thinking and they cannot really show their best during this one-hour real-time session and so on. So there are many pros and cons to, to both sides. And the best way to solve it, what I've seen from the design world, design process, is that uh, actually companies start to realize that actually this step doesn't bring enough value in exchange for the lack of diversity. And they replace it with um, maybe additional conversation, trying to understand how the person has been working before, what have like their problems they solved and so on. From the, uh, I guess, the face-to-face um, interview tips, I would definitely encourage people uh, on the candidate side, to not, I guess, give up the power you have because you already somewhat kind of through the door. At least they want to talk to you like in person or one-on-one list with a human, not like a, an email. So it's already a good sign. Second of all, when you start thinking that they have all the power and it's all kind of you're trying to sell yourself to them instead of trying to understand if, if there is a right fit between both sides, right? So I think like really creating this or at least understanding that this, this should be a more equal relationship and uh, communication between two th- sides. And they're interviewing you. That's, that's their, their goal. But you also don't, you shouldn't forget to interview them and really keep asking questions that you should already have been prepared, not just specifically to the, about the company, but about the values that you care about. Uh, at this stage of your career and your life stage. So like it, there are many different components to this and your priorities will change and that's totally normal. It's just, yeah, I, I've seen examples when like interviewer side, interviewee side, you, you can feel that they're desperate and they just like don't really care where they're going into. They just want the job. And that kind of detracts a bit from the from the hiring side point of view because you do want to make sure that this person knows where, where they're going into. They understand and they are somewhat aligned with, with what the team and the company and the problem space can offer to them. So you don't lose them three months later because this will be a lose-lose for both, for both sides. I'm certain that there should be more balanced relationship here than just uh, you're being grilled as an interviewee and all the power goes to the company. I don't agree with that. I uh, I completely agree with what you you just said there, Kirill. And you explained it so well, like not giving up the power. I think a lot of folks go into the interview room giving up that power that they already have. The reality is, as you mentioned, you're you're already there. The power is is in your hands now, and it's. I think once you're once you're on site for the interview, uh, it's your opportunity to lose. And so that's where that's where the opportunity is sort of made and broken. And uh, I, I do feel like uh, as much as they're interviewing you, you should be interviewing them in that regard, as, as you said. 
And so you need to trust your instincts when you're in their setting. You know, do you, do you like the space of the rooms that you're in, the people that you're meeting? How did it feel when you're greeted uh, at the entrance to the building? The, all these little things should all add up to how you evaluate whether or not this is a place you could see yourself growing, right? It's not just about the job you're taking now. It's about potentially the future jobs within that organization. And you need to be able to see yourself grow there. Do you have any advice or experience or lessons that you've seen in terms of getting the offer letter or getting to the point of negotiation uh, to find that final fit? To be frank, I don't have a lot of experience uh, negotiating compensation or benefits or anything like this. I had one example that I can recall when I was literally like at the last stage. So I got the offer. It was much lower that we initially discussed. I immediately dismissed the company, frankly, because I was like, no, it's it's not my kind of team who would do that. And I said no. And then they had to call me back with a higher number to kind of win me over. But it's still like, I mean, like it definitely ruined my perception and my feeling about the company, even though I accepted the offer at the end. But such attempts to save really dimes for the company, that's like whatever they're trying to push back on, it's, it's just nothing. It's peanuts, right? For the person, that actually may be a noticeable amount for, for their budget, for their family, right? But for the company, it's not worth it. But the, the impact of such way of trying to minimize the costs, I think it's definitely harmful for the brand, for the employer brand, and for, yeah, for the potential retention for the employees. From the interesting tactics that I... I think I applied a couple of times during the interviewing process. So it's kind of a bit merging with the previous question, but I think you could also use it. So there is a guy, uh, Ramit Sethi, who is more like a financial industry sort of self-positioned expert. <laughs> uh, there are so many of those, right? So I found his video a while ago. Uh, I think it's called The Briefcase Technique. And uh, I loved it. I think it's, it's a great way to really bring more, I guess, importance to what you are saying and illustrate the preparation that you did behind, like before the meeting. So you, you could use the same technique for negotiation and really show that you can bring more value than this um, extra or delta that you are trying to negotiate. In brief, the technique um, was about doing research, obviously prior to the conversation, and really understanding, not like not focusing on the numbers themselves, but focusing on how you can bring more value and more return on the company's investment if they hire you, right? So it's almost like a, an action plan or like a roadmap or yeah, like, like a project map of how you would approach this job or this product or the future of this product if you were get hired. And it's like multi-step, multi-prioritized like list of features or things obviously backed with data and some rationale why you think it's good and like it will bring more money to the company. And when they, when they, the company and the hiring manager, and I use this with a couple of conversations with CTOs and they were like actually wowed by that. Uh, so, and there is like some theatrical element when you take this piece of paper or a couple of pieces of paper out of your suitcase and put it on the desk on the table in front of the person. And like, you're going to walk me, walk, walk them through your thinking and your strategy and really kind of your, your, your points to explain how you would approach this. Yeah, if you were to, to get hired and that this extra, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 50K of the compensation would actually be returned within a year and like will pay off significantly. 
Uh, I like that. I think it's especially poignant to the product community because it's sort of your business case about yourself. Exactly. It's the, the ask for your return on investment uh, to validate what you're asking for. So that's that's real solid. Um, Jeremy, any uh, thoughts from yourself in terms of uh, the negotiation process? Sure, I'm, and I don't have anything sort of cheesy like never accept the first offer kind of thing. I don't. I don't really think any of that stuff's real. Um, I think the the important part is understanding. Uh, the market itself, realize where you are geographically, that still matters. Even if maybe you're going for a remote role or it's a global organization, they do have uh, pay grades that are uh, assigned to territories, right? So try to do a little bit of research to understand what that that uh, organization's position is in your country or your locale and do some comparative shopping. Uh, Glassdoor is a great, op- uh, great product for, for doing some comparisons. Reaching out to your network. I think that talking about compensation uh, is less of a taboo now than it used to be. I think people are a little less guarded. And you don't need to frame it in, well, how much do you make? Um, and uh, you know how much of that is, is base pay? How much of that is stock? I think you can come in at ranges right, and still have a comfortable conversation with folks to understand whether or not you're in the right territory. right? Because you don't, you don't want to come off as greedy in the negotiation. Uh, but you also want to make sure that you're you're coming off with a fair fair opportunity. In a perfect world, it's the opportunity that's exciting and it's less about the money, but everybody has bills to pay. And so that needs to be part of the negotiation. So you need to understand your worth and you need to be reasonable about what your worth actually is. And I think marrying those two sometimes is a difficult thing to do. Uh, but do remember, right, that the, they, they're just as much uh, interested in your skills as you are in joining their organization. So it's, it, there's a little bit of a give and take in that. And uh, always, uh, in my opinion, you should, you should try to get exactly what you want. Um, it's very difficult to make corrections to that after the fact. Well, thank you both for sharing your thoughts and experiences uh, today for this episode of Podcast BC. I want to give just uh, some parting thoughts. Uh, Jeremy, if you have anything you want to share. Uh, I think that uh, it's an exciting time to, to join uh, the tech industry. There's lots of opportunities. Don't think that you need to have a technical experience to be able to, to bridge the gap and you know, take the plunge into a, a product role or a QA role. I think it's it's worthwhile to take chances and see what what happens. You know, make sure that you do your homework. Make sure you, you've you're well researched and that your your resume reflects the projects and successes that you've done, not just a, a, a readout of all your skills. Um, I think it's really important to show where you've achieved value in all of your efforts. And I wish wish you all good luck. I think the uh, at the moment it's a really great opportunity for for anyone that wants to to find a change in the in their uh, in their careers. So um, good luck to you all. Thanks. And Krill, your parting thoughts. Frankly, going through the job interviewing process, even if you're like more senior in the career, is still nerve wracking for many many folks, including myself. So I do not enjoy going through the interview process. I feel that it's very tiring and especially when you have multiple different companies in the, on the go and it's always a contact switching and it's like all the logistical nightmare of scheduling calls and interviews. So it's definitely very exhausting, at least for me. But what really helped me minimize the stressful component of this I guess, stage in your career when you want to find a new job is 
treating this as a as a numbers game. Don't sweat about the lack of response from the companies because lots of companies are really bad with ghosting candidates and just kind of disappearing and then reappearing three months later, inviting you for the next phase of the interview, which is ridiculous. Don't do that if you do that. Yeah, just think of this as a as a numbers game. So you you can do this. And it's definitely, sometimes may, may take a bit more time and uh, experimenting and uh, trying like different approaches. But yeah, don't give up and uh, keep your hopes up. Great advice. Well, thanks again, gentlemen. Podcast BC was made in collaboration with volunteers behind Product BC. A special thank you to Camille Paterno for helping with our podcast audio production and Piali Day for support on developing this episode with me. Please go to productbc.ca if you're interested in details on how to become a member and join the community. ProductBC has an active community Slack server for networking, a yearly mentorship program, and a stream of exciting events and speakers. If you'd like to leave us any feedback, please feel free to connect on LinkedIn through the ProductBC Slack community or via email at podcast.productbc.ca. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on Breaking into Product. A big thank you to Jeremy and Kirill for sharing their thoughts and perspectives on this exciting topic. Jeremy would like listeners to know that there are open opportunities available now at Workday. Also, Kirill has recently launched an online resource to help UX and product designers discover cool design teams around the world. If you have designers reporting to you, consider showcasing it on his platform. Visit mysoulteam.com. Thanks for listening. And please consider subscribing if you'd like to stay notified when future Podcast BC episodes drop. You can find our links on podcast.productbc.ca. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>